Today's conversation is brought to you by He Gets Us. How did the world's greatest love story become known as a hate group? That's the question behind He Gets Us, the largest national multimedia campaign to change hearts and minds about Jesus. Reaching over 1 million people daily, He Gets Us now helps connect local churches to the conversation. From discussion guides, Bible reading plans, and even a sermon series, you can now bring He Gets Us and the nationwide conversation to your church. Visit hegetsuspartners.com forward slash NAE to get these free resources. We recognize that who we are as full human beings uh, is comprehensively spiritual. The question for us uh, is the work that we have to do in paying attention to multiple, multiple domains of that spirituality in such a way that we are constantly doing the work of becoming people of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, fairness, self-control. Uh, with all of me that is spiritual in light of the gospel. Today's conversation is the podcast of the National Association of Evangelicals. I'm your host, Walter Kim, NAE president. In these conversations, we seek to help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. We were made to flourish and to help others flourish. Dr. Kurt Thompson, psychiatrist and author, joins me for a conversation exploring soul care and what it means to be awakened to the spirit in our bodies. Kurt, it is good to see you again. <laughs> we had the pleasure of connecting in Nashville at the Flourish uh, Conference in 2022. And mm-hmm. I have to say, uh, your presentation there was not only informative, it was deeply encouraging. It's one of those presentations mm-hmm. that seemed to have a long shelf life because mm-hmm. whether or not folks resonated with it in that particular moment, mm-hmm. I think we will all find ourselves mm-hmm. experiencing mm-hmm. challenges that you touched upon. So thank mm-hmm. you. Thank mm-hmm. you for being there and for what you shared. Well, Walter, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me to be part of the podcast. It's great to see you again. Great to have this opportunity to have this conversation. And I, I'm also, it's just really humbling, as I, as I think I said in that presentation, it's, it's humbling anytime we are with people who are really serious about following the king, because uh, it's not easy to do. If you are around me very much, you hear me say this over and over and over because it's, it's just true. And so when people are wanting to do that, uh, it's encouraging for me too. So it was great for me to be in that room. I mean, for my own uh, well-being, my own encouragement uh, about what it means to live as a Jesus follower here. And so great to be off now having the chance to speak with you again about important things. In, in, in your talk um, and in your work more broadly as a clinical psychiatrist, you draw um, from interpersonal neurobiology. <laughs> That's a big a term. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So can you, can you explain what is interpersonal neurobiology? <laughs> So it is a two-word phrase that was coined by my friend and colleague Dan Siegel back now close to 20 years plus, a, a long 20 years or more ago. And Dan was recognizing that there are a lot of different scientific disciplines that study different parts of the mind. They have a stake in what is the mind? What does a healthy mind look like? How does it function? How do we know when a mind isn't functioning well? All those different kinds of questions. But those scientific disciplines are all over the map. 
And many of them in their rather siloed ways of doing their research don't necessarily talk to any of the other domains or disciplines of the field of science. And Dan's question, Dan's curiosity really led him to say, well, what do all these different rather disparate uh, disciplines, what do they have in common? What are some common, you know, things that, that come out of that? And that led to his coming up with, you know, in the course of, you know, uh, really kind of curating this from the minds of lots of different scientists, coming up with a kind of a working description and definition that we have in that scientific field of the mind. Uh, we don't go into all that right now, but but the overarching way of talking about the mind then really uh, is this way of acknowledging that the mind is both based in the body. It's in, it, right. It's it's neurobiology, right? It is the biology, not just of the brain, but how the brain extends through the spinal cord into all the different neural network firing patterns, all those brain cells that extend right to the tips of your fingers and your abdomen and all the things. But it is also interpersonal in this sense that my mind is not reducible to the brain, nor reducible to my body, nor is it reducible to just the things that I think about in the abstract. And it is deeply shaped from the time, even before I come into the world, it is deeply shaped by my interactions with other human beings, my brain, certain neurons turn on and turn off based on the way I inter interact with you. Hmm. And so hence this phrase, interpersonal neurobiology, it's a category that helps us recognize that we are both embodied creatures, but we are also relational creatures. And which is so striking to me, this is, you know, Dan is not a person of Christian faith, but when you read the second page of the Bible, and the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the earth, out of the mud, and then breathed his breath of life into man's beings, and then you just read one, you know, a few paragraphs later, it's not good for the man to be alone, so I'm going to make him a helper. Let us make mankind, therefore, in our image, this sense that the Bible itself kind of anthropologically speaks to the fact that we are dirt and we are breath. We are embodied and we are relational. Mm. And even though they weren't neuroscientists who were working through the Hebrew Bible, you know, somewhere between, you know, two and 3,000 years ago and working all that out, uh, they speak in language that is certainly consistent with what that neuroscience and that relational science is now pointing to, which is really a beautiful thing. Mm. Wow, this is this is a, a work of integration, integration of the various fields of of science that you mentioned as being disparate, um, integration with uh, a vision of the formation of humans from scripture. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to draw the the part out that relates to spirituality and mm -hmm. ask you to integrate that. So mm -hmm. all this stuff about interpersonal neurobiology, how does it connect uh to what we often, as followers of Jesus, talk about spirituality or how God has created us to be. Right. Well, I think uh, sometimes it's helpful for us to just kind of pause and rewind the tape and or, or maybe even just kind of take a step back and acknowledge the context of the culture in which we're even posing that question. Hmm. We Christians in 2023 now, when we talk about spirituality we can't help but imagine it in the context of being modernist slash postmodernist people of the West, largely. And what that means is that over the last four to five hundred years, we have slowly but surely been 
coming to believe that human beings are these separated creatures. We have the spiritual realm over here and we have the physical realm over here. And the physical realm is the, you know, that's the domain of science and all the things that we can measure. And the spiritual realm is something else, whatever is left over. So I think about it in rather abstract terms. I think about it in terms that I can't really get my hands around and measure. Uh, that whole notion would be completely foreign to the people who actually wrote the Bible. Hmm. And so for Paul or for Moses or for Isaiah, the notion of spirituality would have been something that was assumed to be deeply d embedded in and consistent with what their everyday life was. Uh, the preparing of food was no less spiritual than the prayers that they uttered to Yahweh. Mm. And it's important for us to recognize that the Bible itself, when taken on its own terms, does not talk about spirituality largely the way that we tend to think about it. This is why the immersion in the scriptures on its own terms is so crucially important for us now more than ever, because it's easy for us to uh, separate our spirituality off into this realm that we can't actually access from a physical standpoint. But what the Bible itself says, even Paul in Romans 1.20 says, like, the creation itself from the beginning, God has revealed in creation his nature and his power in creation, that the creation itself bears witness to who we are and who God is and so forth and so on. And it's no less spiritual. And practically speaking, what does that mean? That means that when we start to pay attention to things that we're learning in this field of interpersonal neurobiology, it points us to ways in which we are actually human that we've often forgotten that are just as spiritual. Hmm. When I choose to exercise, when I choose to look lovingly at my child, when I would much rather yell at my child, hmm. the facial expression, the way I eat my food, that is no less spiritual than my encounter with God in prayer. God is no less concerned about what I do with my body than he is with what I do with my thinking brain. Hmm. The beautiful thing for me and what for what we've seen in our patients is that when we say something like, I can't control my anger, I read in the scriptures that I'm to be angry, but sin not, but I can't control my anger. And we think that anger is this thing that's happening somewhere in the outer reaches of my mind that I can't get a hold of. But if we were to say, well, wait a minute, uh, when you find yourself feeling angry, like where in your body do you sense it? And I say, well, I sense it in my clenched jaw hmm. or I sense it in my fists or I sense it in my shortness of breath. And we say, OK, just for a moment, I just want you to take your right hand and put it on your chest. And I want you to slowly take three to five deep breaths. We have someone do that. And then we say, what's happened to your anger? Well, it's changed because of something I've actually done with my body. Because this thing that I inhabit, my body, the mud from Genesis 2-7, that is every bit as spiritual as the breath, uh, when I pay attention to that, when I pay attention to the way I interact, with the body of my child, my spouse, my friend, my enemy, my board member, my employee, especially as leaders who are listening to this. 
we recognize that who we are as full human beings uh, is comprehensively spiritual. The question for us uh, is the work that we have to do in paying attention to multiple, multiple domains of that spirituality in such a way that we are constantly doing the work of becoming people of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control uh, with all of me that is spiritual in light of the gospel. Hmm. I mean, just even having this conversation, I'm all of a sudden very aware of my body, how I'm sitting and talking <laughs> yeah, with you. Right. Right. Where breath is coming from. And, you know, it makes me think about all the, the metaphors and scriptures and the ways that even prayers described, you know, raising mm-hmm. up of hands, kneeling before God. I mean, it's very right. embodied and and the metaphor of compassion in the New Testament, you know, it's related to the gut of like what we experience in our gut. Absolutely. Is, is compassion. It's, it's it's there in scripture, in the very yeah. description of how we are to live mm-hmm. out our lives. It, it's mm-hmm. it's our bodies, it's our minds. It's right. but you add to that not just the fact that we aren't brains on sticks, we're brains in mm-hmm. bodies, mm-hmm. but our bodies themselves are in a network of communities of, of, of right. people. So you, and it's that now I want to draw something out. Hmm. So you, you shared in um your book, The Soul of Desire that we have a desire uh, to be known and uh, and our ability to create and these desires to be known, they have been marred by trauma and shame. So not only are we embodied and need to deal mm-hmm. with that, mm-hmm. but we're embodied within a network of people and those peoples and our experiences sometimes lead to trauma and mm-hmm. shame. And perhaps mm-hmm. now more than ever, pe- people mm-hmm. have experienced trauma. So. Mm-hmm. Why why do these things connect body, shame, trauma? Why do they connect and how do they impact our ability to create and experience beauty around us? Mm-hmm. Well, I you know, I, I for uh, our listeners uh, who are not aware of it, I'll just say that uh, I've, I've become a fan of the folks at The Bible Project. And these are folks who've done some work that has been really helpful for me. And one of the things that I've come away with so far in listening to Tim Mackey and John Collins, Tim Mackey would say, uh, there's I mean, everything you need to know about the way human beings are, you can read in the first four chapters of Genesis. That's all you need to know. The first four chapters covers everything. And I, I say that in response to your reflection and question by saying, we read on the first page that we were made in the image of a pluralistic God. We Christians would read back into Genesis 1 and say, the gods, including the triune God, are sitting in council and saying, hey, let's do this. Let's make them like us. So we are made, not just in the abstract or theologically, we are made neurobiologically in community. But we are not just made in community, we are made in community to be like God, which means we are made to make things. If we're going to be like God, we're made to make and steward things on the earth. That's what we're made to do. We are made, we are made as people of great longing, great desire to be deeply known. And how do we do that? We are going to be known vulnerably, right? The man and his wife were naked. They were vulnerable and they were unashamed. They were differentiated. I am 
designed to be present with those who are different than me, certainly males and females. We have all kinds of other categories for differences, ethnicity, socioeconomic. There are all kinds of differences. We are created to, with people of difference, in great vulnerability, without shame in the world, then go on to create beauty. This is at the edge and the end of Genesis chapter 2. There we are. That's who we were made to be. And then you get to Genesis 3 and everything falls apart. And we, we one thing I think it's important to recognize is, you know, we, we uh, of course, the, all, all kinds of theologies and libraries are full of questions about the fall and about the first. All, all, and, and those things are not untrue. But I my my attention is drawn. And then these writers tell us, I mean, they, they do this intentionally. My attention is drawn to the conversation, the nature of the conversation, not just what the serpent says to the woman. But the nature of how the conversation takes place between the serpent and the woman, yet in the place, in, in the presence of the man, and within earshot of God. This whole sense that long before any fruit is taken by the woman, there is a wounding that is taking place in the conversation between the snake and the woman. The snake is attempting to wound her relationship with God quite subtly, quite indirectly, because this is how evil works. And in the course of coping with that wound, she has a choice to make and that her husband witnesses. And the very act of taking isn't just taking from the fruit. It is pushing God away and it is also pushing her husband away as a way to cope. But we would wonder, well, where was the husband? Why was the husband even allowing the snake to be in the garden in the first place? Why was the husband jumping in and saying, excuse me, I've heard a different story like, no, 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 I, I, we're, I'm going to interrupt this. We're going to wait till God comes around for his afternoon talk. And then the four, four of us can have a conversation. He doesn't do this. Something's happening even before the fruit gets eaten. And, the, and, the, and I believe the writers want us to notice this. That trauma that is taking place verbally, right, it's doing violence to her relationship, then leads to violence and trauma between the woman and the man, right, because they – they, they, they discovered that they were naked. There's this sense of, and their eyes were opened. The Hebrew is a passive tense. They didn't open their eyes. Their eyes were opened by something beyond them. And then this conversation in which the man then pushes violence on his wife when he talks to God and throws her under the bus. And, and then this, and then Cain kills Abel in the chapter that follows. All these, this, all this violence and we see that what evil is doing is not just getting people to sin. Evil is wounding us in, a, in an attempt to prevent us from creating beauty and goodness in the world. The beauty and goodness that we are called to create is the very thing that evil cannot tolerate. And as such, we'll do everything possible to keep us from doing that and our traumatic histories, not just individually, but generationally, wield shame as a way to undo and disconnect all of God's planned way for us to create beauty and goodness together. So where we were first made to create in differentiated states with people who were different than me, now I just wanna be comfortable, I just wanna be with the people who were like me. Politically, I just want to be with the people who are like me. And not only that, I'm not just aware of who I am. I'm who I'm, I, I'm, I become aware of who I am because of who I am not. Hmm. 
That's how I define myself. I'm not the woman, the woman you gave me. Hmm. He's already like coming to, he's already creating a narrative. Adam's creating a narrative of himself in terms of who he isn't, which is odd. He's not saying, he doesn't say to God, I was passive and silent. And that's why this happened. He's going to talk about it in terms of who he isn't. I'm not that person over there. And this is how we increasingly define ourselves now. Hmm. I'm not a Ukrainian. I'm not a Russian. I'm not, the, I'm not a man. I'm not a, I'm a I, all these ways that we then perpetrate violence toward the others. I need to be the same. I need to be with people who are like me. And I define that by the people who I'm not. I also need to not be vulnerable. I'm going to have more tanks. I'm going to have more airtight political arguments. I'm, I'm not going to be curious about the other. Because what we are doing is we are just simply trying to manage our shame and our trauma. Instead of allowing the gospel to, with its vulnerability and its peacemaking, with its resistance to violence, do the work that God really wants to do for us. And I especially think about leaders whose job it is to create spaces for beauty and goodness to happen on their watch. Uh, it's difficult for them to do that if they don't have someone who's helping them know that they are wanted by others who are different from them. If they don't know that they are in spaces where they can be vulnerable, where they also know that their shame can be named in order for it to be healed and regenerated. Wow. There's a lot for us to process in that um, because it gets right at the core of the things that we desire most and we fear most. Hmm. And this phrasing of the evil that wounds us. Hmm. I mean, it's um, the cost of evil to our own self in the terms of violence. So, so you're using terms, violence, vulnerability, wounding, shame. These are very, very um, piercing terms. And yet you're inviting us to step into spaces where we can discover beauty. Mm. So now I want to, like, how do we balance all of this? Because on the one hand, um, as a follower of Jesus, we have the promises of scripture that we trust in him and the spirit's going to change us. And you already alluded to the fruit of the spirit. So God can change us as individuals mm. through his spirit. Mm. And yet you're describing a communal setting in which we live. So how do we balance or maybe coordinate, maybe balance is not the right way. How do we coordinate the reality that God can directly work in our lives to transform us by his spirit and the power of the gospel? And yet we're also to live in community that both wounds us, but also we seem to need if we're going to have redemption. So are you saying Jesus is not enough that we need Jesus and community or how does this all work out? <laughs> yeah. Well, again, I, I would invite us to uh, to imagine that even the way we are uh, posing the question, um, in some respects, pays homage to the third page of the Bible, mm. where in which uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to, to know these things means that I can know that I know that I know and that I know right from wrong. But it also tends to mean that the moment that I am in that position, it means I have to know everything. But the reality is that my brain can't know everything. 
so uh, the best I can do is to know exactly, is this right or is this wrong? It, and then I we, we come to find out that we, more often than not, we tend to relationally operate in binary fashion. Is this God or is this people? And if it's not that, and we're thinking in these terms and we're not even aware that we're, we're not even aware that that's what we're doing. And when we read, when we meditate on the scriptures over and over and over again, again, the folks, the Bible project point this out. Once you get beyond the second page of the Bible, it is rare if ever that God himself does anything in the entire canon of scripture that he's not doing through human beings. In terms of like things that people have decisions that people have to make and so forth and so on like he's really serious about what he said on the first two pages of the bible and so this whole and and, and then it culminates back around when you when you get to this notion that jesus says you know tear down this temple and i'll rebuild it in three days i am the temple but then he turns around and with this with pentecost the temple now becomes us mm -hmm. we are the body of jesus and we then start to get anxious well wait a minute is it the body of jesus or is it jesus himself is it god who's doing things or is it us who's doing things and therein we tend to pay homage to this binary way of thinking about there's a spiritual realm where god exists and then there's a material realm where we exist there's nothing about the scriptures that would indicate that the scriptures believe that that's the world that we're living in mm. The scriptures believe that the kingdom of heaven is, as N.T. Wright would say, is that part of reality that God occupies, that's in our world. The question is, am I able to see it and be in it? And so what we would say is that uh, we, one of the things that we like to say is that, you know, you can say to me, Jesus loves me. And I can tell you that if I don't have an embodied experience of that, that I feel in my chest, it has not yet become fully real to me. Which is why when you, Walter, tell me that you love me, it's much easier for me to imagine a 33-year-old Jew from 2,000 years ago telling me the same thing. Hmm. Because if I grew up in a house where somebody telling me that they love me just never happened, my brain doesn't have a template on which it makes any sense. And the fact that you tell me that as a fact that read off some ancient text isn't really going to mean much if I can't sense, image, and feel it literally in my physicality. Hmm. And as far as what we read about in the scriptures, we would say then when we are in community, we explore this in this fourth verse, the 27th Psalm in the soul of desire, this notion that to live in the house, dwell in the house of the Lord, which is dwelling in community that I can gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And the beauty is not just those things that are easily identified as beautiful, but are also those very things that are traumatic to us. We would say that there's, at the end of the day, when we get to Easter, we look back on Good Friday and say, there's nothing more beautiful than a crucified Lord. Hmm. But I can only say that from the standpoint of Easter. Hmm. But if we are sitting as Easter people together, and I am revealing to you the thing about my life that I hate the most and I'm the most ashamed of, and you meet me not with condemnation, but with hospitality, 
that completely changes my narrative of what it is of the story that I've been telling about this part of me that isn't worthy for redemption. Hmm. Because in your welcoming that part of my story into the room with compassion, that is the redemptive moment in which we would say, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not just you. It is you through the power of the Holy Spirit. And frankly, I don't need to bifurcate those and figure them out like, well, what parts Walter and what parts the Spirit? Mm-hmm. I don't know that God's worried about that as much as he wants there to be the Sermon on the Mount kind of life on the world. Yeah. That's so compelling. Uh, you know, there's the genealogies in the Bible are often so boring to us as modern readers. But if you are making this point of the importance of the way that God actually works in the world, the genealogies point to not something boring, but something beautiful. That, oh my gosh. that the history of salvation is woven through real flesh and blood people who had children, who had children, who had children. And then Messiah came along. Right. And, 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 then, and many of whom were like really screwed up. Wow. I mean, like that, that, that anything good comes in the world from me. I mean, you know, talk to my wife that yeah. any, that anything good in the world comes is, is just a miracle. But this is what God chooses to do and what he's doing. Like we, we talk in our work, in our, in our practice, we say, you know, uh, especially as believers, we're, we're, we're not very good at loving people. And we want to be better at this. We want to be better at loving people. And of course, everybody wants this, right? Everybody wants, but we uh, often forget that there is something else that we're even less uh, well adapted to do. And that is to be receptive to love. The thing we do most poorly of all the things we do as human beings is allow ourselves to be loved. This is the rich young ruler who misses the look in Jesus' eye in Mark's gospel. This is however many different experiences that we've had where we miss the look because of how our trauma and shame are trying to protect us against God's bid for intimacy. And this now happens writ large in our social and political landscapes where we long for intimacy that we at the same time are terrified of approaching because we have too much memory of how intimacy has burned us in the past. Mm. And the gospel continues to come and say, no matter how long it takes, Jesus is coming for us. He's mm. coming for us. Kurt, you, um, I'm going to take you at your word of the importance of our embodied existence in our community lives, both with the potential to wound, but also to heal. Mm. So mm. when I think about an embodied existence and exercise, physical exercise, I mean, yeah. I, I can have some mechanics. I, I, know what a diet could look like. I know what an exercise regime could look like. When it comes to um, trauma, shame, grief, and redemption, Hmm. is there a set of mechanics? What is the exercise for the soul when it comes to that, that deals with our embodied existence within community? Well, this probably gets into a topic that uh, we, we, you know, probably would require more time than we have. But I, I, I would say this: that 
just as an example, I'll, I'll, I'll give one quick example. It's an aside of, of an exercise that we give married couples to do. Um, and this is, uh, this is not easy for them to do, but it's, it's pretty simple. And especially if the couple comes, as we might say, comes into the, they come into the office hot, meaning, uh, they're angry. Something has happened. Like maybe even the parking lot before mm -hmm. they came up stairs for their session. And, uh, many therapists employ this. Uh, it is a, it's an exercise in which you have the couple sit knee to knee looking at each other. And you give them t time to take two or three deep breaths and get relaxed, even in their distress with each other. And then I give them the assignment. I say, I want you to simply, uh, for the next five minutes, I'm going to time it. For the next five minutes, I want you to gaze at each other, not stare at each other, but I want you to gaze at each other with loving kindness. Now, you know, at first glance, there's something about this that feels very simple and straightforward. Oh, I'm going to look at you with loving kindness until you start to recognize that, like, I'm mad at you. Mm. So how am I like, how am I going to do that? You might say, well, I don't feel I don't I like I like and, and they said to me, like, no, I don't want to do that. Like, I want you to take some deep breaths. And I want you to begin to look at your spouse with loving kindness. And they begin to recognize that, you know, oh, this thing called loving kindness is is not an abstract thing. It is a physically communicated, you know, material world based phenomenon that happens when I choose to look with a certain expression on my face, certain form of eye contact, a softening of my smile, and I'm looking at the other and I'm communicating without saying a word, I'm communicating I love you. I care about you. I, you're important to me. You're important in the world. You're you're communicating this, and and we all we've all had these experiences when someone looks across the room at us with kind with loving kindness. Like we know, we like we get it. We know when they're looking at us and they're being mean or they're 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 mad. All the things. And you will watch that for about the first sixty to ninety seconds. It's very uncomfortable for them. They're squirming in their seats. They're looking someplace else other than at their spouse. And they finally, most of the time, not, not always, but most, they finally settle in. And at about the two minute mark, they will find their capacity to just begin to look at each other with love and kindness. And I will tell you, Walter, almost to a person, by the time you get to five minutes, they don't want to stop. And the reason is because they haven't had anybody look at them with love and kindness uninterrupted for five minutes in forever i mean in our to our listening audience when's the last time anybody who's listening to this can say oh yeah yeah several times a day i had this thing where i somebody comes into my office and just sits and looks at me with loving kindness for five minutes like no no this this doesn't happen to us but it's an example it's a microcosm of all the things that we are doing all the time interpersonally, neurobiologically, it is a mechanical way, right? This is the way you said, well, here's some physical things that I can do. Here are some markers. I can eat this. I can exercise and so forth. There are all kinds of ways in which we help people pay attention to, for instance, the seven nonverbal cues with which you express yourself to others in the world and you express things to yourself in the world. 60 to 90% of all human communication is nonverbal. 
most of which we are not paying attention to a whit. We can change that. I pay more attention to my body. I pay more attention to the part of my memory that is in the room controlling the conversation that I wasn't aware of is actually my memory. I'm talking to my wife, but I'm actually like also talking to my dad who's in the room, but who's been deceased since I was 17. All the things that are taking place that when we grow in the wisdom of the awareness of all that we are that are in the room and the awareness of all that the other is when they are in the room, we then begin to discover ways in which we can live with loving kindness toward the other, but only to the degree that I myself am having experiences someplace in which I am being, which I'm the recipient of loving kindness. And this is where Christian community makes all the difference. We talk about these confessional communities that we, uh, that we develop in our practice and that we're developing in communities across the country. And these are spaces where people could come and name their story in such a way that quite literally uh, who they are becoming in real time and space uh, is every bit as measurable as uh, who they're becoming in the gym. Mm. Wow. Uh, you almost want to get every church across our country, every community, we just line up chairs across our nation and have people sit across from one another and look at each other, gaze at each other yeah. with kindness. Um, mm. That would be transformative. That's very powerful. Um, you've covered a number of, of topics and issues with such candor that those listening may, may feel something in their spirit stirring. Mm. What is f one final word of encouragement or exhortation that as we seek to be awakened to the Spirit's work in our life in the present, what, what would you leave us with as a final encouragement? Well, you know, Walter, one thing that, um, that I, I, I remind people that we aren't living in a neutral universe. We're living in a universe in which evil, the, the stakes are high and evil has an intention to devour us. But as Peter says, like our job is not to be afraid of evil. Our job is to be vigilant and to be aware. Uh, evil is the second smartest force on the planet, far smarter than we are. Uh, it will not outflank Jesus, but it can outflank us if we aren't paying attention. And one of the ways that uh, I think that we can sometimes become overwhelmed by our lives is that we're working really hard to follow Jesus and evil will want to tempt us to somehow believe that the pace and depth at which we are becoming more like Jesus just isn't deep or fast enough. That all the things that we've talked about here that can, in my view, sound really hopeful. Um, I can hear this hopeful message and then I think, oh my gosh, I want to do this. And I think that I should be able to become this like in the next six weeks. And so what I want to say, I want to just remind us of what Jesus said when he said in this, I, I, I said these things to you so that in me, you will have peace. Not peace is the world gives, because in the world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And I, my, my, uh, my hopeful encouragement is that 
as we turn to first be receptive and, and it takes practice it takes it takes work to find and to create the communities in which we can be receptive to love so that we can then turn and offer that love to others as we do that know that jesus knows that this is not easy to do it's not complicated but it's not easy to do and he's not worried about our pace he's too busy being with us in the work of being known by others in our vulnerability and in our difference on the way to creating beauty and goodness in a work in the world acknowledging that it will be hard to do there will be suffering and that he is confident that he is going to finish what he started wow thank you hmm. our guest on today's conversation has been kurt thompson i'm walter kim and on behalf of us all truly thank you kurt the national association of evangelicals is where we use influence for good Today's conversation is one of many ways we help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please sign up for our email list and visit our resource hub at nae.org.